Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Earlier today, UBS CEO Sergio Armadi sounded the alarm on fresh monetary easing just as European policymakers appear poised to deliver yet another helping of stimulus to the markets that are expecting them. Uh, he was speaking with Bloomberg Television, asked whether he is concerned that we may be headed towards bubble territory. Take a listen. Well, you know, I think that you, you can see it in the second in, in the second quarter. Yes, asset prices went up, but it's not really correlated with investor sentiment, and which is, in my point of view, of course, a very uh, dangerous development. And uh, the, the only good things is that we observe is that cash balances with clients is very high. Mm -hmm. uh, what they say is that they are willing to step into the market if there is a major correction. Uh, but, uh, you know, asset levels at such high level are, are not necessarily correlated with investor sentiments. So this raises a question, are we seeing bubbles starting to form? Joining us now, Mike Buchanan, Deputy Chief Investment Officer at Western Asset Management Co., which oversees about $430 billion and focuses on fixed income investing. Uh, Mike, you have uh, decades of experience dating back to 1990 focused on credit markets. Do you see excesses starting to form that are looking a little bubblicious? Um, I, you know, I, I think when you look at the developed credit markets, um, we're not yet seeing those telltale signs that, that signal a, a, an end in the cycle or, or even the, you know, kind of the, the approaching doom and turning point in the cycle. Uh, obviously, performance um, and just the longevity of this rally um, does make you anxious. It makes you nervous. Uh, but when we look at, you know, a lot of the metrics that we try to track to signal you know, what is this market going to look like fundamentally uh, six months from now, a year from now? We're not really seeing uh, a lot of evidence that's suggesting, um, you know, bubble-like uh, territory. So, Mike, as we think about, if it were not bubble-like territory, just kind of maybe going the other way a little bit, I'm just thinking about the global economic outlook. Um, Europe continues to be very unsettled with some real weakness developing, even in, in, in Germany, and Brexit probably not going to be helpful there. China's slowing, but still uh, very positive, and even the U.S. slowing a little bit. So as you think about the U.S. market, given some of our big trading partners, is recession in your outlook for maybe the back half of 2020? It's not. Um, we actually think that um, we're in a, in a little bit, when you think of all these fixed income spread sectors and you think about the global economy, we're in somewhat of an ideal situation um, in that growth is, is slow, um, yet positive. And even in Europe, where um, there are some real challenges, obviously you've got the ECB providing a lot of accommodation to keep things moving along. And we would argue that expectations are so low in Europe that you're likely to see some improvement just based on very, very low expectations. So the idea of a very slow growth economic backdrop with an inflation outlook um, that is certainly challenged um, in terms of achieving most central bank targets, that should keep rates pinned uh, at these very or relatively low levels. Um, and then the flip side is, you know, I think you look at a, a lot of the fundamentals in these spread sectors, and they look uh, reasonably healthy to us. So 
we, we think that, that the market can continue in the direction that it's been more recently, where it's you know, not dramatic performance from here, but more of a carry trade. And that's really the, the strategies that we have echoed throughout our uh, fixed income portfolios. So if it's a carry trade, that means you want to go to the assets that have the biggest carry. I'm looking right now at high yield bonds, uh, returning 10% so far year to date. Even if they don't deliver that much more, it's a pretty good year. Are you saying to people, buy high yield, buy emerging markets? Yeah, I think you got to be careful about um, where you're getting your carry, and, and certainly this isn't a time to be greedy with the carry trade. We think you can. Um, There's there certainly parts of those markets that you mentioned uh, that are that are still appealing. Um, I, I would say with with high yield, our focus really has been on individual issuer selection. We still think there's some, you know, even if the market's yielding now inside of six percent. We're still finding in that sort of five and a half, six and a half percent range some pretty good opportunities that fundamentally and have, are moving in the right direction. They have the right trajectory. Um, and emerging markets, uh, probably being a little more selective there, we think just emerging market rates in general are one of the better opportunities. So you can even hedge out the, the currency risk, buy local bonds and take advantage of, we think it's, it's more of a secular trend. If you think about what's happened in developing markets yeah. um, with inflation, where it is, with the trend in, in real rates going lower, um, yeah. emerging market local still looks pretty compelling, so we think there's opportunity there. When you talk about specific credit selection, I'm struck by volumes in the high bond market, how much trading there is, and it's actually fallen so far year to date to the lowest since 2014. And I'm wondering how difficult is it for you to execute some of your uh, company-specific views? Yeah, I, I, that's a that's a great observation, and I I, I think it's accurate. I mean, liquidity uh, and trading is is definitely you know is it is it the summer? There's probably some contribution coming from that. It's been a good year. Um, you know, the volumes have definitely slowed down, um, but it is still. I mean, we we ran run a very big uh, investment grade book, a very big high yield book and loan book, and we are still able to effectuate the trades that we need to. Um, a little more challenging for our traders, takes a little more patience, um, but we're still getting the things done that, that we need to. But I, I think you just got to be a little more careful and have a little more forethought in how you want to execute those and, and be patient. Um, I also think the idea that you can hedge your portfolio with um, not only CDX, which is the portfolio product for these markets, but also options on CDX. Those markets have become extremely liquid. Those allow us to take risk off and put risk on opportunistically without having to uh, execute in cash bonds all the time. So, Mike, just real quickly, I'm looking at your uh, third quarter global outlook, and you've got this great graphic here about relative value by region. Where globally are you seeing the best value right now? Well, I, I think, you know, I hinted at one of these, but, but outside of developed markets and the emerging markets, um, we think that's uh, an attractive area for us. We've, we've been bullish uh, there, specifically, I would say, Indonesia, Russia, uh, Brazil, um, Mexico. Those are probably our... our you know, top picks within emerging markets. And again, what we would say is just taking advantage of high local rates there is something that um, we think is a, is, a, is a really attractive risk-reward relationship. Um, I think broadly staying in the U.S. where the economy is, is, is a little healthier, 
Um, you've got interest rate policy. You've got uh, the central bank policy that is clearly pivoted right. towards a more dovish stance. Um, so we think that's yep. an area where, too, we're going to have a U.S. bias portfolio. Got it. Um, Mike, thanks. Yeah. So, thank you so much. Mike Buchanan, Deputy Chief uh, Investment Officer for Western Asset Management. Uh, we appreciate you coming on based in Pasadena, California. They are really one of the big uh, the experts on the fixed income markets. Well, tomorrow, special counsel Robert Mueller will testify before two congressional committees. The question, I think, on most people's minds is, will he have any new information that was not contained in the uh, his report? Uh, to give us a sense of what we might see uh, tomorrow, we welcome Michael Zeldin, Michael's former federal prosecutor and was actually Robert Mueller's former special assistant at the Department of Justice. And uh, Michael is currently a CNN legal analyst. He's based in Washington, D.C. Michael, thanks so much for joining us. Again, you were uh, Robert Mueller's special assistant at the Department of Justice. Uh, you know him well. Do you expect him to disclose any new material information tomorrow? Well, new is the key word because first, no, in a simple answer, because I think he has said plainly that he's going to stick to the report. But new, yes, in the sense that I don't believe many people have read his report, so it'll be new to them if they tune in. So the information will be that information which has already been put out there, but because most people haven't read it, I think it'll be new news to them. And that's the hope, I think, of the committee in having him testify orally to, if you will, watch the movie rather than read the book. Well, Michael, there's some controversy this morning with Democrats pushing back on a Department of Justice recommendation to Bob Mueller to stick to the script, to stick to what's in the report. But this comes as uh, Robert Mueller actually asked them for guidance. Why would he do that? Well, in the report itself, before it was released, there was information that was blacked out, redacted is the word, and that involved ongoing cases, cases of personal individuals, privacy rights, and some executive privilege-related materials. And so what Mueller said is, we worked out a deal in terms of transmitting this report between the Justice Department and Congress around these things, these redactions. Do you want me to stick to that, or am I free to go beyond that which has been previously redacted, and the Justice Department said, no, stick to our previous agreement. The stuff that has been redacted should remain redacted, and you shouldn't testify to it. So I think that's what the essence of that letter was. So, Michael, if under questioning uh, tomorrow, Mr. Mueller is asked questions that are not included in the report, maybe outside the purview of the actual report, but he does know the answer, is he just going to plead the fifth or just say, I can't comment? Well, he's free to speak to whatever he knows, he is not a DOJ employee, and as long as it does not involve privacy-protected, executive privilege, or ongoing investigation matters, he's free to offer his opinion. So, for example, in a silly hypothetical, if they asked him, Bob, what is your favorite color? That's not in the report. He's free to say whatever his favorite color is. But if they ask him, what is your opinion on whether or not you would have indicted the president but for the Office of Legal Counsel opinion? That's not exactly in the report. That's something he has knowledge of, and he is free to answer that. I don't think he will, but 
Justice Department cannot prevent him from offering his opinion about what is in his report. Michael, have you read the report? Of course, yes. Okay, so what do you think is the uh, most shocking or sensational aspect that you think the Democrats should home in on that perhaps people aren't as aware of? Well, the fact, there are two parts of the report, of course. There's the intelligence version, volume one, and that talks about collusion and conspiracy. And in that, what I think Adam Schiff and the Democrats on the House Intelligence Committee want to get out is that even though Mueller found no evidence of criminal conspiracy, he did find a very willing Trump white uh, uh, campaign to receive help from foreign countries. I think that's what the Democrats want to get out on the intelligence side. The Republicans want to push back and say, yes, but there was no criminal conspiracy, hence no collusion. On the House Judiciary side, Volume 2, Mueller's, you know, sort of 800-pound gorilla line in the report is, if I could have exonerated the president of criminal wrongdoing, I would have done so, but I couldn't. And I think what the Democrats want to drive home is, why couldn't you? What was it, what behavior did Trump engage in that you felt could implicate criminal behavior? and have him go through the report almost section by section, where the report indicates that Trump told McGahn to fire Mueller, where Trump told Sessions to tell Mueller not to investigate Trump. Those sort of things are that which the Democrats want to drive home, um, as important as it is to their, to their message. The Republicans want to, again, push back and say, yes, but no no criminal behavior, and Barr and Rosenstein, the deputy attorney general and the attorney general at the time, um, found no criminal offense. So, Michael, from a legal perspective, do you think anything can, be, can come out of the hearing tomorrow that could uh, advance um, those in Congress that want to move forward with impeachment? Well, it depends on how well Mueller tells the story that he has written down. His story in his report is really rather compelling with respect to the obstructive acts or the attempted obstructive acts that he found Trump to have engaged in. If he can tell that story coherently in in movie-like dialogue and people hear it for the first time, they may have an oh my moment in their appreciation of what it is that Mueller found in his report. If he's very legalistic and and, and not a very compelling witness and sticks very much to yes and no answers, I don't think this advances the ball in any way. Which uh, seems like might be his tact based on his reluctance, right? I mean, why is he so reluctant to testify? He's a reluctant human being. Uh, You know, all the years that I worked with him, what we used to say about Bob all the time was he was first and foremost a Marine. He was asked questions. He gave answers to those questions. He didn't elaborate. He didn't offer opinions. And that's the way he, if you watch his testimony over the years when he was in the FBI and otherwise, he is a very reluctant witness. He is very different than Jim Comey, who talks, you know, quite fluently with the media That's not Bob. And so I think that you'll find here that same reticent personality 
coming through in the testimony. The only exception to that potentially is if the Republicans start attacking his integrity or the integrity of his team, the 13 angry Democrats uh, mantra that we hear a lot, he may take offense at that, and there you may see some you know, uh, emotion. Yeah. Michael Zeldin, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, very illuminating. Michael Zeldin, former federal prosecutor, as well as Robert Mueller's former special assistant while at the Department of Justice, currently a CNN legal analyst joining us from Washington, D.C. We will be taking those hearings tomorrow uh, throughout the day as we hear what Robert Mueller has to say and what the Democrats and Republicans, how they try to frame the report. We're getting a slew of economic data throughout the week from nations around the world. In the U.S., we got today uh, U.S. previously owned home sales, and we're going to get, of course, the GDP numbers on Friday. Joining us here to talk about what we can expect and how to understand what we're getting in terms of some of these economic data points. Constance Hunter, we are so glad to have you here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. Constance is chief economist at KPMG. So let's start with the data that we have, which is the previously owned home sales, which declined more than expected in June. Where are we in terms of the U.S. housing market? So to set the stage, we've actually had five quarters of negative real estate investment. And uh, that is usually a sign that your uh, expansion is coming to an end. It's one of the many signals that economists look at when they think, is an inflation coming, right? And, and obviously the one that people know about most is, is the yield curve inversion, but this is another one that economists have in their arsenal. And so it's a puzzle because usually it is, it is, it's a leading indicator. Jobs are a concurrent indicator, but we've seen such a robust jobs market that it is a puzzle. And and so if we look at other factors around housing, right, we look at the affordability index. It's yeah. long-term average is 124. We're above 150. So it's a puzzle. And I think the puzzle comes down to supply and enough um, lower-priced homes that, that it actually makes it possible for first-time home buyers to join the market. Now, we did see an uptick in first-time home buyers. It went from 32 to 35 percent. But, but this, this sluggish housing market is a bit of a puzzle, and I think it's one of the, the factors, that even though Powell hasn't cited it, I think it is one of the factors in the back of the minds of economists at the Federal Reserve System thinking about, does it make sense to have this insurance rate cut? So let's let's go there since we're having the Fed on the 31st meeting. Um, you know, kind of question of an insurance cut or a preemptive cut. Give us your thoughts about that. Is it are they is it effective? What's the cost associated with that? All all that kind of thing. Well, yeah, and Paul, you bring up a good point. What is the cost? So insurance is really good to have, but we all know it's not free, right? So there is a cost, um, and especially the closer we are to the zero lower bound, that cost goes up, right? Because they're if they 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 have uh, so much arsenal, and if they're using it up now and it doesn't work, then they have less arsenal to use later. But if we look back, so there's two uh, parallel situations from the 90s. So the first uh, is from 
1994 and 1995. So in 94, the Fed hiked in November 75 basis points. The market wasn't expecting that. They weren't sure if we were going to get 25 or 50. Greenspan surprised with a 75 basis point rate increase. And if you recall, a mere four weeks later, we started to have the tequila crisis. At the end of 1994, that bled into 1995. We ended up bailing out Why the Mexican. Why did you call it the tequila? Because of the Mexican bond crisis. Thank you. Uh, sorry, thank you for, for everybody. For, it was for those because everybody got threw up their hands and went to the bars and drank a whole bunch of tequila and margaritas. (laughs) They probably did that too. Yes, absolutely. So the Fed did some preemptive cuts or some insurance cuts because it was external turbulence uh, and it worked. Then fast forward to 1998, we've had the Asian financial crisis that sort of bled into the Russian default and devaluation, which caused a bunch of purchasing of off-the-run treasuries, uh, which uh, was not what long-term capital management had planned for. And so in conjunction with, with the long-term capital management liquidity squeeze, the Fed did another set of almost 100 basis points over the course of a year, preemptive cuts, and that allowed us to continue the expansion to 2001. And right now what we're seeing is if you look at different indicators like the yield curve that you talked about, it seems like markets believe that the Federal Reserve will effectively stave off a a near-term recession with the expected three rate cuts uh, that is currently being priced into the market. Do you agree with that? Yeah, and economists broadly agree with that. So the National Association for Business Economics, NABE, did a survey uh, recently, and the percentage of people who expect a recession has great in the second half of this year has greatly diminished from about 20% to 12. And then in the first half of 2020, it's diminished, and, and so now people are betting on second half of 2020. So people don't think we're going to avoid a recession altogether, or at least that's not what the most recent NABE survey shows, but they do think it's going to prolong the expansion. And of course, that that is that is you know consistent with the Fed's mandate, right? Try to get uh, maximum employment and full full GDP as long as possible. How concerned are you about manufacturing globally? Continues to be sluggish, uh, certainly versus the consumer. When is that going to become a real problem for the U.S. Per se, per se? Well, I think it's already somewhat of a problem for us in that um, we're seeing the manufacture the regional Fed manufacturing indices more or less be be somewhat weak um, we've somewhat mixed in the in the latest that have come out but but globally that manufacturing cycle is really important and it bleeds over into services but if you see what Gita Gopinath talked about this morning when the IMF released its report they have a whole chapter on this diversion between uh, the services economy and the trade economy. And we see that divergent also, divergence also in price indices, right? So the services prices are well in line with um, the Fed's goal of 2%. They're at or above 2%, whereas it's good prices that are really dragging down the overall index. So this is a dichotomy that um, has so far hasn't affected the broad economy, but certainly has the potential to bleed into the broader economy. Constance Hunter, thank you so much for joining us. Constance is the chief economist for KPMG, uh, based here in New York City, joining us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. One thing I, I'm just, I'm still thinking about the housing market. Yes, I, I'm just. I'm stuck Are you a buyer there. or seller? <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> um, I'm an owner, okay. so th- I do have a vested interest, full disclosure. Uh, but I do have to wonder how much the weakness is due to a lack of foreign investment in the United States or falling investment from the uh, from Europe and China. 
I don't know. I don't know. I just, I mean, per, certainly in big cities. Well, certainly in New York City. I mean, the, a lot of these, the mega high rises that we see in mid- Midtown have been, you know, occupied primarily, primarily by overseas customers. And, and uh, so it's just been propping up the high end of the market. So I'm not sure if it's your side of the market. I'm not oh, sure. Oh, <laughs> probably. You're right. You're totally nailed it. <laughs> this is Bloomberg. Earlier today, Boris Johnson, the public face of the Brexit campaign, won the contest to succeed Theresa May as British Prime Minister, maybe taking the country closer to a no-deal Brexit. That's according to Moody's. We want to get some insight from our Bloomberg Opinion columnist, uh, Therese Raphael, joining us now from London, Bloomberg Opinion editor covering European politics and economics. Uh, Therese, what first do you expect Boris Johnson to do uh, when it comes to Brexit? He has, I think, 100 days, right, to to come to some sort of uh, determination and plan? Yeah, so Boris has run a campaign that is uh, very different from uh, the stance that Theresa May took on Brexit. So whereas May uh, originally threatened to leave without a deal if she couldn't get a good deal, the threat was never credible. Britain was not prepared. Boris has made clear from the outset that uh, a no-deal exit is you know, not only something he's willing to do, but something he actually thinks wouldn't be as disastrous for Britain as pretty much every uh, serious economic analysis suggests it would be. So I think, you know, the first thing he's going to try to do is uh, uh, he'll have to appoint a cabinet and then he's going to try to meet with EU leaders and see if he can get some traction there. And and I would expect him to have an early meeting in Ireland because the key to this this whole thing is obviously the Irish border issue. So, Therese, do you think he can get the support for a no deal Brexit? It seems like the arguments are pretty consistent across many party lines that it would, in fact, be very uh, catastrophic for the UK. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's two questions. Can he get the support for it in Parliament? The answer to that is, is is an emphatic no. Parliament has voted many times against a no deal. They are still trying to prevent him from, uh, you know, from from fulfilling that pledge. But the other question is, can he do it anyhow? And can he win enough backing in public opinion to make the threat seem credible? Um, and, I, and I think that's something EU leaders are going to watch very closely. If it looks like Boris, who is, uh, you know, let's face it, a very skilled, convincing communicator, can can convince the British public at large that he has a plan, that it's credible, that the fears of a no-deal Brexit are not are you know are are somehow exaggerated. Then EU leaders may may start worrying that that's where he's going to take things. And if there is to be an early election, which many think is quite likely, that he will uh, lead the Conservatives to victory. And then I think we start to see some movement from the EU side. Although the room, it must be said, is very very small. I'm struggling. Just let's take a step back. So Boris Johnson resigned at one point. He is a very colorful character. He has led a number of populist movements. How much popular support does he have as he rises to be the prime minister of UK? Well, here's the interesting thing about Boris Johnson and public opinion. Um, so if yeah, there was a Comrades 
poll recently, and when asked between the two Conservative Party leadership candidates, which one uh, would do better at managing the economy? The answer came out, Jeremy Hunt. Which one would make a better prime minister? The answer came out, Jeremy Hunt. Which one would be better at uh, dealing with foreign leaders? The answer came out, Jeremy Hunt. Would you ask which one has a better chance of delivering Brexit? It was Boris Johnson. Tax cuts, it's Boris Johnson. So in a way, Johnson is the one that people uh, turn to uh, for, you know, in a way, a sort of ideological satisfaction. But I think opinion uh, can be very fickle when it comes to him. And if he's you know, the trust levels are low, people, you know, the, the, the poll after poll shows people don't trust him. So I think if he breaches, you know, the, the trust that's been put on in him by the Conservative Party early on, we could see a vote of no confidence in Parliament. We could see uh, another backlash. But, you know, he, he is uniquely skilled in appealing to uh, the public. And I think that's the sort of X factor about Johnson that's really hard to just dismiss. So, Therese, if there is, if this impasse uh, kind of results in a, another general election in the near term, is that to any one side's uh, benefit, do you think? Well, I don't think it's to Jeremy Corbyn, Labor Party leader's benefit right now. His party is, you know, has been adrift on Brexit uh beset by uh, all sorts of internal wrangling, not not least and, and latest over anti-Semitism. Um, so I, I think the Labor Party is, is now going to want to avoid uh, an early election. Be very interesting to see how the Liberal Democrats take that. They have a new leader, Joe Swinson, very young, dynamic uh, leader, and they have picked up uh, points in the polls after the European elections with a very solid pro-Remain uh platform. So, you know, Boris may like his chances, but I think only if he can get Britain out of the EU. I think he would take a giant risk going to uh, an early election before he's delivered Brexit. Therese Raphael, thank you so much. Therese is Bloomberg Opinion Editor covering European politics and economics, joining us from the London Bureau. You can read more on this and other stories from Bloomberg Opinion at Bloomberg.com slash opinion. And of course, on the terminal by typing O-P-I-N go for Bloomberg Opinion. Some of our uh, best work, I think, coming out of Bloomberg News, some great analysis. Uh, but it just is interesting to see, you know, with Boris, Boris Johnson, uh, presumably tomorrow will be named prime minister. Um, you know, what is in his toolbox that he thinks he can get this deal done that maybe Theresa May did not? Is it just his personality? Well, is it just this chaos theory, this idea that he will come <laughs> in and he'll say, I will take a no-deal Brexit, and that's fine by me because that was not fine uh, with, uh, with, with yep. Theresa May. And so you know, would that threat be enough for the EU, or will you not care? Will they right. say, all right, go ahead. <laughs> exactly. Just looking at pound sterling right here, uh, weaker uh, on the day at 1.2447 down slightly. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.